This podcast is hosted by RPP. The following episode contains coarse language, violent themes, sexual references, and the really creepy stuff. If you're underage, turn off your device. Normal people, Esther, don't just go straight to demonic infestation like we do. Because the government was also freaked out about babies. They might be dealing with a demonic possession. Meanwhile, as she's on top of him squeezing his throat, she's screaming, who sent you here? And they started to move towards her really fast. What are these? Australian aliens. Welcome, uh, everybody, to I Think My Fridge is Haunted. I have a very special guest here today. Chris is out. She's at work because we're recording at a different time to what we normally do. Esther is busy with university work. As we all know, Esther is studying criminology and she's crazy busy right now. So I am joined with one of my favorite podcasters of all time, Miss Chrissy Rios. Hey, Chrissy. As okay, <laughs> I have mentioned the Boozy Betty's on our podcast so many times. People are sick of it. So Boozy Betty's was your old podcast. Now you've got a new podcast called An Eerie Good Time. Tell us all about that. So An Eerie Good Time is essentially well. Right now, I need to be be honest and say it's in a it's in a transition because. Doing a podcast by yourself is really hard. Right. Like I did not realize I did one episode of Boozy Betty's alone and I told Hope I would never do it alone again. <laughs> it was so difficult. But that mm. show also was very dependent on the girlfriend point of view. That element, it's very kind of like, what's your opinion on this? What's your opinion on this? Ha ha, me too. Exactly. And so when, you know, because Hope wanted to kind of, you know, step back and live her life and I'm all for it and I'm here for her doing that and you know I'm I I'm happy that she's happy and it didn't take away from our friendship it was probably the best thing because at a point you don't want to lose your friendship over it either you know exactly yeah so it was good for us but then moving into an eerie good time was my okay I love true crime like I'm a true crime junkie Mm -hmm. junkie I watch it all the time I read about it if there's something creeptastic i'm i'm all in on it oh me too it seemed like such a natural progression for me to go into something i really love yeah you know not that i don't love you know my my girls and you know my my buddies and my booze but (laughs) i really love true crime and so i started doing and i did the first few episodes but i really realized super quick that it is hard to do alone Mm mm-hmm it's, it's really got that very... kind of awkwardness to it um, where you can't bounce off somebody else. Well, and that, that really became part of my issue. It was I, I also like to put a, a funny spin on everything. And exactly. it's funny when you can bounce it off of somebody. You can really find yeah. the way to make it comical. But when you're sitting by yourself, it's really difficult to be funny because mm-hmm. you sort of start thinking, am I just coming off being super insensitive? <laughs> like, you don't know. You have that little weird. How do I? How do I do it? So, currently, um, the podcast is in a bit of transition, and I did a few episodes and accepted my okay. I need people on my show, but anyway, so that's what I'm doing. So there'll be actually. A, I would love to have you as a guest on the show. Well, I would love to be there. Thank you. 
I would love to flip uh, flip the coin and do it with you on my show. Sweet. The only problem that I have is I find it very hard to calculate the time difference. Facts from the freezer. Facts from the freezer. On that note, you know what? I'm going to go straight into my fact from the freezer because it's about, I wanted today's episode to be about like Australian stuff. So my fact from the freezer is about my local frogs. (laughs) Do you have your computer near you? I do actually. It's right in front of me. If I send you an email with a little video on it. Oh yeah, for sure. So I want to tell you for my fact from the freezer, I want to tell you about banjo frogs or as they are known in our area, they're called pobble bonks. I love that. Pobble bonks are one of my favourite things in the world and we live next door to a big field. So basically they're these little frogs and they're named pobble bonks because they make this little sound that goes bonk, bonk, bonk. Yeah. So what they do is they dig with their back legs and they dig backwards into the ground and then they hide away underneath the ground until it rains. So after we've had a big rain, that's what the field next door sounds like. There's just thousands of these little pobble bonks just going bonk, 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 bonk. That is kind of fun. They're so cute. (laughs) (laughs) It's not really a fact, but that's my fact. Well, it's, I didn't know it, so it is now. It's like a true fact. I didn't know, so I enjoy that. I love that. It was really that cute. Was I was one because we kind of I live next to kind of wine country down here, and there's a local winery that's done a uh, a one off like barrel, and they've called it Pobble Bonk Chardonnay. <laughs> oh my god, I love it! I'm actually really getting into wine, so that made me. I'm interested. That's my I, new like. I do love a glass. Do you like wine? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Down here, we've got a lot of uh, Chardonnays, Pinot Gris. Not so oh, doing. I don't drink red because I get migraines. So I always mm-hmm. drink whites. But we've got a lot of really Same. nice Proseccos down here as well. I love it. Uh, yeah, I'm really getting into wines. But same thing. I can't drink a red. They oh, give me a headache. Really? Terrible hangovers, two glasses, and the next morning I feel like I'm dying. Yeah, they're very strong, really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what's your fact? Okay, my fact is, and I truly did not know this, did you know that Ben Franklin, there were 12 bodies found in the basement of his home 200 years later? So in 1997, the skeletal, I'm sorry, the skeletal remains of 28 bodies were unearthed in the basement of his townhouse. Dating back to when he lived there specifically? Yes. 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 The bones, they were able to test, you know, like the age of the bones and. Were they able to test uh, cause of death? So what it looks like is they were, it was a, a home that did that taught, you know, like anatomy. And so they would buy these bodies and instead of giving them to the local wharf to bring them to a cemetery to bury what they didn't use, they just decided to bury them in the bottom, the basement of the house. Oh, wow. Children, not just all adults. And you know what? I bet there's like 
parts of people as well where they're not going to be able to piece them all together because say they're they're doing anatomy on say the hand or the head or the brain or whatever I bet that there is and back then I mean we haven't done the um you know the 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 two Scottish guys that would raid the the graveyards and they would uh, and they would this is about oh what you in the 1800s I think this was they would grave rob and they would sell the bodies to the local doctors so that they could, you know, perform autopsies and learn more about the human anatomy. But the thing was <laughs> they found that it was actually quicker and easier and um, sort of more cost-effective to just kill people <laughs> and then sell those bodies as well. They are like, hey, we're running out of bodies, like, you know, graves to rob. Let's just kill people and sell those on. Eventually they got found out. But, yeah, like you would think that they would be, you know, say you've got, hey, I'm Chrissy, I've got a few bodies, like, you know, in the back, who wants to buy them? And someone's like, I'll take an arm. Can I have a leg, please? I'm in, I'm in the market for a brain. So, you know, you could have parts of a body going to all different parts of the state that mm-hmm. will never be found. So that is actually really sad. Yeah, and in the house apparently – the total of bones. So they pieced together 28 bodies, but there were 1200 bones found. So I think it's right to say what you said about. There's not, there's not enough bones for three, for uh, 28 people. Yeah. Right now they're saying they were, well, not, not right now, but this article reads that they found 28 bodies and over 1200 human bones is what it says. So over. Wow. But I, they, if this was at the time before they had finished this excavation, because there were two different articles I was looking at, I was yeah. trying to screen and get a lot of information. At that's very interesting. Is this a recent thing that's happened? No, it looks like it happened. So they originally found it back in 1997. Right. But they're still covering it even as recently as 2016. Um, yep. They were talking about it still. Um, in the Londonist. That's very interesting indeed. Wow. I would be really interested to, to know more about that, um, specifically if they were uh, robbed graves or if they were people from mental asylums or if they were criminal bodies because a lot of times they would give criminal bodies to doctors and surgeons. And that's what it says here too, that th- many of these they believe were body snatched and were Stolen dead bodies that were being sold to the scientists. Wow. I feel like we could um, dwell on this for a long time. A really interesting one. I mean, yeah, I get it. I, I'm with you on that. When I when I first saw it, I was like, okay, that's random and interesting and factual. I need to share this. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say really quickly as well, thank you so much. Well, I say thank you, but in, in a weird traumatized way, thank you so much for um, recommending on your podcast that the documentary Life of Crime, it was such an interesting journey to watch that documentary. And anyone who's listening, it's on here in Australia, it's on Binge, which is a, a streaming uh, service. I don't know what it's on in America. But basically, and I think I've talked about this on here before, but it, it, someone has had the foresight to film these people in New York or Jer- New Jersey, wasn't it? Since the mid-80s, since the mid-80s, mm-hmm. someone followed them around with a camera up until 2020. 
And then they've pieced all of these stories together and made it into a two-hour documentary. It was amazing. And it showed um, these, it's called Life of Crime, and it showed these, specifically these three people, there are other people as well, but these three people and their journey through addiction and crime and prison and sobriety, and it was just amazing, absolutely, and shocking at times too. Yeah. It was uh, Life of Crime 1984 to 2020, and in the States, on HBO Max. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I highly, highly recommend because at, at, at first you put it on and you're like, what is this? Like, there's no narrator. No one's being interviewed. It's just someone with an old school camera, just filming people in their houses and there is domestic violence. So definitely trigger warning for that type of thing. And the, there are the, these people that are in a cycle of a, a lot of times of poverty and they have no choice but to make their life robbery, um, assault, those types of things. And in some of these cases, they make it out of that life. And in some cases they don't. So it was a really yeah. amazing, amazing documentary. Yeah, it's a very deep, big, deep dive into the addiction and how it starts because mm-hmm. none of them were on the same level of drugs when they started their addiction as to where they So it was such a, and a very quick turn. It wasn't if it was, you know, 10, 12 years later, then they were addicted to a different drug. It was almost within a, you know, maybe a year's time, they had escalated into higher levels of drug use. And it was frightening and watching their physical changes too. Yeah. Was was really eye-opening, I guess, because you don't, I think, I think it's hard to see. When you watch it in video form, you can really see how it went from one extreme to the next insanely fast. Mm-hmm. And the and the what they were willing to do to get money and all the things that kind of were encompassed in it and even going to prison didn't stop. Yeah. What was interesting to me is well when they fell off the wagon and went back into drug use and back into crime, their personalities completely changed as well. From mm-hmm. being um they just lost this sense of um compassion within themselves and they became quite selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. And just even seeing how long, I mean, there was, there was one person, I don't want to, for people who haven't seen, I obviously don't want to spoil it because it's really worth the watch and not to have it ruined for you in the beginning or, you know, over, over a podcast. But I think, and for myself, I can speak, I was really rooting for them to succeed. Exactly. You get to a point where you're like, oh, I really want them to to do well. And they're they're definitely on the straight and narrow now. They're definitely on a really good path. And then in some cases you're like, I was really hoping that they would do well. And then this happened. Yeah. And that was, I think that was the heartbreaking aspect watching that was watching Mm -hmm. with this oh my God, this is it. This is it. And you really like, you start to feel excited for them and you're happy and they're clean and they're, they look good and they feel good. And then and they're helping others as well. Yes. Yes. And it just takes that one time, that one time, one time mm-hmm. and they're right back where they started. And it's just, 
yeah, it's, it was so good. I honestly, it's to date still one of my favorites. And it's funny because I was thinking about that, literally not even joking, less than a week ago. Yeah. Once you've seen it, you don't forget it. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's the, it's, it just shows how powerful it was. Mm. Yeah. Shall we get into this story? Let's do it. So this is one of those ones that uh, <laughs> I like to tell Chris, our producer, it's going to ruin your life. <laughs> she's very squeamish and sometimes Esther and I will be talking about a story and she'll just be like covering her face with her hands and just like really just like I thought I'd heard the worst and now you top it (laughs) so today I'm going to be telling you an Australian story this is the story of Catherine Knight who is sometimes known as the Australian Jeffrey Dahmer oh lovely Now, there's quite a few names. Uh, I'll sort of try to tell it as succinctly as I possibly can. My sources today were the book Beyond Bad by Sandra Lee, Wikipedia, 7news, allthat'sinteresting.com, ranker.com, news.com.au, dailytelegraph, nowtolove.com.au, the documentary on crimes that shook Australia, the Daily Mail, of course, the worst source in the world, but I always use it, and also the Casual (laughs) Criminals podcast and the Generation Y podcast. Okay, this has been heavily covered. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of sources. It's a Yeah, there's a lot. The thing with me with crime, uh, research of crime, there's a lot of, um, hang on, an ad just popped up. I don't know why. I find that with crime, there's a lot of sloppy journalism. And I talk about this every time I cover a crime story. Some, like Even on Crimes That Shook Australia, which is a really well-respected crime documentary series. Even mm-hmm. they got her her age wrong, you know, and it doesn't take much to figure out when she was born and 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 to add up in your head what, how old she was when this crime took place. You know, and some places will say she had this child in this year and this child in this year. There's a lot of discrepancies, so I like to read as many sources as I can so that I mm-hmm. can choose which is sort of the most popular <laughs> fact and then yeah. I just presume that that is is the one to go with but um yeah with, when you're when you're researching true crime um it, it can be a minefield of very very sloppy journalism and you will see one newspaper literally copying word from word word for word from another I have, newspaper I have definitely seen that I have definitely seen that 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 actually was the first thing that blew my mind when I started doing a true, mm-hmm. pro- true crime podcast was how audacious some of them are with just yeah so sloppy they's mine i'm gonna change two words and i'm gonna make it mine it's yeah, yeah. it's frustrating it's- as well because here's me an unpaid podcaster from the suburbs trying to figure out your crappy work <laughs> frustrating it's, it exists everywhere. It's not just in uh, the suburbs of Australia. I can promise you that it lives very well in the city of Chicago. <laughs> so let's go straight into the crime scene. And then I'm going to go back a little bit and explain some of the key players in this story. Okay. On the morning of March 1st, 2000, Constable Scott Matthews receives a call from the workmate of a local man to say that his colleague, 45-year-old minor 
John Price, had not turned up for work that morning. Now, John Price was normally the first employee at the site every day. Even if he'd had a big night on the drinks last the night before, he was still the first guy on the scene. And so Constable Scott Matthews does a drive-by, uh, sorry, I have to go back. And John, John Price's friends had done a drive-by of his house and they'd noticed that his truck was still outside. Okay. So the police were called to do a, welf- a welfare check of the house. Constable Matthews and Sergeant Graham Furlonger go over to the house and they knock on the front door. Now, being this is in a small town, so Constable Matthews actually knew John Price. Sergeant Furlonger explained that when they went to the house, as they were waiting for a response to their knocks, there was actually some blood on the door jam. And there's still no answer. Nobody's answering. They look through what they described as a little gap. So I presume they look through a window into the living room mm-hmm. and they can see something hanging up that looks looks like what they described as a bunched up curtain. They decide to go around the back of the house and break in through the back door. So Sergeant Furlonger says, as I went in, I saw straight ahead what I thought was a curtain. Constable Matthews, who was the younger of the two, said it was blocking their entry into the hallway. So he moves it aside with his left hand and it feels cold. Oh, no. (laughs) He looks down and his arm is covered in blood and he says, I couldn't understand why I was bleeding. And he thinks that he's injured himself as he was breaking in through the back door. But there's also blood covering the walls. Sergeant Furlonger then realises what's going on. He puts his arm out and he says, don't look, Scotty. But it's too late. He sees that what they thought was a curtain was actually a human pelt. The full skin of a man. What? Full skin of a man. Freshly removed full skin and hung up. The skin belongs to 45-year-old John Price. Oh, my God. Asleep in the bedroom is 44-year-old Catherine Knight. We'll come back to this crime scene. You okay? Yeah. No, I'm totally into this. I have to ask, was it like not just, was it whole body? Was it face too? I mean, like, was it? It's everything. It's everything. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So who is this woman that's asleep in the bedroom? Catherine Knight. Well, she was born in 1955 in a very small town called Tenterfield in northern New South Wales. So we're talking very rural country town. And this place is known for producing beef and wool. So it's like an industrial, working man kind of town. Mm -hmm. Catherine was born into a very dysfunctional family that involved a lot of violent and sexual abuse. Before she was born, her mother Barbara had been married to a man named Jack Rowan and they had had four sons before Barbara started having an affair 
with another guy called Ken Knight, who was actually her husband's friend. This local scandal led Barbara and Ken to move to another town called Moree, and she leaves her kids behind with their dad. Well, two of them anyway. She leaves two of them with her dad and two of them go to stay with their auntie in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So with this guy that she's had an affair with, Barbara and Ken, they had four other children, including twins, Catherine and Joy. So Catherine is the one that we're focusing on. Mm -hmm. In 1959, when Catherine Knight was four, Barbara, her mum, her previous husband, Jack, died and his two older sons moved in with Barbara and Ken. So we've got this big blended family, sort of kind of rough around the edges. Ken. With parents that are actually Ken and Barbie. (laughs) It's true. Actually, I, I didn't notice that, but yes, exactly. But Ken would actually, he was an alcoholic. He would drink a lot and he would... He would actually beat and rape his wife up to 10 times a day. Oh, my God. I mean, this was a really bad home environment and there's, you know, quite a lot of kids involved. Oh, my gosh. And Barbara would tell her daughters openly about this and would would tell them that she, she hated men. Catherine has said, and it is commonly accepted apparently, that she was frequently sexually assaulted by members of the family until she was about 11. Oh, my gosh. So it's a bad situation. So Catherine wasn't close to many members of her family, but she was close to her uncle Oscar, Um, and she was devastated when he committed suicide in 1969, so she would have been about 14. Um, And that same year, the family moved a few hours down south to a place called Aberdeen, where she went to a place called Muswell Brook High School. So Aberdeen is located about three hours north of Sydney. I've actually heard of Aberdeen. Well, there's Aberdeen, Scotland. That's the one that I know. This Aberdeen is not a famous place in Australia. The Aberdeen I'm thinking of. As soon as you said Scotland, I was like, oh, I think that's it. (laughs) (laughs) but this and I think actually the other Aberdeen is where Kurt Cobain grew up in I want to say Washington State Mm -hmm. Washington yeah Yeah. no that's it Washington State so Aberdeen in Australia is located about three hours north of Sydney it's a small industrial town known for mining and the abattoir It's also, it's another town where there's sort of a lower socioeconomic population. You know, it's, there there are not a lot of wealthy people in this place. It's a very working class town. So a guy called Dan Proudman, the chief, chief police reporter at the Newcastle Herald said, Aberdeen is the type of country town that's probably had its best years. Its best years are probably behind it now. So, you know, they would have had a mining boom, you know, maybe in the 40s. And it's sort of, you know, it's on it's on the way to being, you know, not as prosperous as it once was. Mm-hmm. So Catherine was not a good student, barely managing to read and write. And she had a hard time with the other kids. And she became kind of the school bully to the smaller kids. And once she even attacked a teacher. 
So she left school at the age of 15. She doesn't have a lot going for her because she she's she, she's not very literate. But she gets a job working at a clothing factory as a cutter. And the following year she gets a different job that will later define her. And it's proce- processing offal at the local abattoir, which employed a lot of people from the town and they actually killed about 600 animals per day. Catherine loved working at the abattoir. She actually said it was her dream job. When she was promoted to boning carcasses, she was given her own set of butcher's knives, which which she would take home to clean and she would keep them near her bed. So when she was promoted to boning carcasses, uh, she was given her own set of butcher's knives, which she would take home at night to clean and she would keep them near her bed. She would say, in case I need them. And she would also like in, um, enjoy spending time with the man at the abattoir whose job it was to kill pigs. And he said he loved his job. And I think she probably learned a lot from him. So later when Catherine learned to slaughter animals, she was sometimes caught sort of killing them a little bit too slowly than what would be considered humane. Like savoring the Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, So, I don't know if she was maybe manifesting uh, some anger about her childhood, about her, uh, the people that abused her, and she was maybe taking it out on the animals. It's highly possible. Yeah, I agree. But she was kind of obsessed with death as well. She had animal skulls in her house and animal traps and horns and skins. And apparently she would just have them all over the walls, even hanging from the ceilings. What the hell? Do you know what? This woman as well, she's so normal looking. She looks like, you know, your Auntie Kathy or something. She just looks very normal. So she's been described as actually having a massive sense of entitlement Uh, within her personality and she was known in the town as being kind of a troublemaker Um, and she was known for going after anyone that upset her often violently Mm. another thing about her is that she was uh, she was in a lot of relationships so even though she was quite a violent angry person she had this side of her that If she was in a relationship, she would always have dinner on the table at night. You know, she was actually apparently sort of quite a good housewife. Mm. And she had two sides to each other where she would have this crazy rageful side and then she would turn it to being this like motherly sweet side. So in 1973, she meets David Kellett and he is her first husband David has kind of a sad past. He's an alcoholic uh, and many attribute this to a couple of things that happened to him. The first thing that happened was that he watched his best friend die in a railway accident at work. Oh, wow. And another really bad thing that happened 
was that he rescued some injured people in a, a, a school bus that had been hit by a train and six children had died. Oh. Um, so he had had a couple of really bad things that had happened to him. So he relied very heavily on drinking. When he lost his job in the railway industry, he started working in the abattoir industry as well. And that's where he met Catherine's brother and then he met Catherine. So on their wedding night, the violence started. Oh. So he'd been drinking for a couple of days leading up to the wedding and he could only go three rounds with her after the wedding and this made her very upset. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So when he kept falling asleep, she decided to strangle him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Happy wedding gift. Yeah, right. And David later said that her own mother, Barb, had said soon after we got married, you want to watch this one. If you do the wrong thing by her, she will kill you. Oh, wow. So even her own, her own family is warning him. Yeah. So violence within their marriage was a huge problem. Once David got home from the pub uh, late because he'd been competing in a darts competition and he'd done really well and he got into like the semifinals or something. He was really excited about it. So he got home late. So he comes home and Catherine, who was heavily pregnant at the time, burned all of his clothing and shoes and then she hit him across the back of her head with a frying pan. Oh, the old frying pan. <laughs> David fled the house and went to a neighbour's and was treated for a fractured skull. Holy crap. Um, police wanted to charge Catherine for this crime, but she switched over to sweet motherly Catherine and she talked David into dropping the, the charges. Very bipolar, soci like a sociopath almost. They have actually said that she has, um, borderline personality. Mm, okay. Which, yeah, could explain a lot of this. Mm -hmm. David did eventually leave Catherine in either May or August 1976, depending on which article you read. Uh, and by this time, she had given birth to her daughter, Melissa, and Melissa was just a few weeks old. And David goes and moves into state. So after David leaves Catherine, she's incensed. She was seen on the main street violently throwing the pram containing her baby from side to side. Oh, my God. And some locals uh, saw this and the police came and she was sectioned at St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, which is um, a psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. And she went there for a few weeks where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression. But the worst was yet to come. When she got out, Catherine took the baby to a railway track and left it there. And she walks off, walks into town, steals an axe from someone's backyard and goes, in, goes through town threatening to kill people. Meanwhile, an old local man called Old Ted finds the baby as he's foraging for things on the railway line. And he gets the baby to safety just a few minutes before the next train comes. So wait, she left the baby 
the tracks. Yeah. Oh my god. Luckily someone saw it. Oh my god. Because again, rural town and I'm guessing these are the type of trains out there that are these high-speed freight trains. These are not going to be mm-hmm. carrying people going from, you know, Sydney to Aberdeen because I'm not convinced that that many people go from Sydney to Aberdeen to to warrant, you know, a train to do that. Uh, so I'm going to guess that these are those, you know, big freight trains that have got, um, yeah. you know, cattle or whatever. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Catherine is once again taken to St. Elmo's but walks out the following day. So she's still really mad that David has left her and gone God knows where. So Catherine convinces a neighbour of hers who um, lives with her 16-year-old daughter to give her a ride claiming she needs to take her baby Melissa to the hospital for medical treatment. So the lady, her 16-year-old daughter, Catherine and the baby are all in the car, and once they're in the car, Catherine pulls a knife on the woman. Oh, Jesus. Demanding that she takes her to find David in Queensland, which is hours away. You know, we're talking like an eight-hour drive. The woman puts up a fight against Catherine, and she slashes the woman's face. Wait, what? The woman escapes after they stopped at a petrol station and calls for the police But by the time the police get there, she's taken a boy hostage and he's holding a knife up to him. Police, and this is so Australian, police stop her by attacking her with brooms. (laughs) Do you know what? It just reminds me that there was this guy um, that that went nuts in a Sydney street, um, I think it was two years ago, and some local, just people walking by, they were like the heroes of the story. They found like there was a market nearby or something and they found like, you know, like kind of like some like fruit crates and they sort of put the fruit crates like over his head and over like all over his body and like sat on them. (laughs) Um, So the police attack her with the brooms and they end up taking her to another psychiatric hospital. So when she gets to the hospital, she tells nurses about her ingenious plan that involved killing the mechanic who serviced David's car because the car was how David was able to escape from her. So she wanted to kill the mechanic that made that possible. Then she wanted to go to Queensland, find David, and kill not only him but his mother as well. So this is the level of logic that we're dealing with here. So, by this time, David has found out what kind of mayhem that Catherine has been up to in Aberdeen while he's been gone. And he, he's, he's actually had a new girlfriend by this point, and he leaves his new girlfriend and comes back to take care of Catherine, along with his mother, both of whom she planned to kill, but they've come back to look after her. So, good on you, David, I suppose. After this, they move up to Ipswich together, which is um, a small city outside of Brisbane, where she gets a, another job at an abattoir. So they stay together after all this madness. In 1983, they have a daughter called Natasha. But in 1984, Catherine leaves David and moves back to Aberdeen and goes back to work at the old abattoir. 
But the following year, she injures her back and she's first to give up work and she has to claim disability. So she gets a disability pension and she also gets a housing commission house. So I'm going to guess that she's not very happy about having to claim disability and not being able to work because she really enjoyed her job. And, you know, I think she's one of those people that the more time alone that she has to think, the more crazy logic has time to stew in her mind. Right. It seems like she might even be a little cognizant of that, that she realizes dead time is causing dead crazy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that brings us to her second marriage, and that's to a guy named David Saunders. He's 38. He's a minor. Uh, she meets him in 1986. And a few months later, uh, he moved in with her and her daughters. Now, the thing about him is he keeps his old apartment in a neighbouring town. After a short time, her old jealousy and rage kicks in. She would think that her partners would be cheating on her if they stayed out too long um, or they she didn't like if, if they went to the pub for too long because it meant that they weren't giving her their attention and she would go nuts. So he would go back to his apartment if after they would have like a fight and then she would beg him to come back. Mm-hmm. So here's another example of how much of an awful rageful person she was in may 1987 she took and i'm sorry in advance she took david's eight week old puppy and she cut its throat oh Uh, no No. she killed it because she wanted to show him what would happen if he ever had an affair and then she hit him with a frying pan because that's what she does she's really a Frying pans. She's into the frying pan uh, <laughs> MO uh, and she knocked him unconscious. Holy hell. And the following year, they had another daughter called Sarah. So this is Catherine's third child. Uh, and soon after this, they, they bought a house and she was able to um, start paying it off with her disability um, pension. But the violence, the violence and, and insanity, insanity continued. continued. at quinpop.com. You could literally say quinpop.com to me all day long and I would listen to it all day long. 